Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Or at least you should be. Pantheon Podcast presents From Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to The Devil's Music a Pantheon podcast where rock and roll meets the occult. For those of you that don't know me, I do a lot of stuff. I'm a dancer, actor, tarot reader, and a best-selling author with eight books out. I got one on the way, too. Look for my new memoir, Rock and Roll Witch, on Punk Hostage Press. You might have seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. In fact, look for me in the new GoGo stock. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, please go to pleasantgaiman.com or check out my Instagram, Princess of Hollywood. All one word, baby. I post there a lot. I'm really happy to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Everyone at Pantheon tells stories about the music we love so much. There's like 50 podcasts. Find them all on Pantheon, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.com, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. Head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend. Or I'll put a spell on you, baby. This is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to my podcast, The Devil's Music. Today, my guest is Terry Graham, punk rock icon, drummer for the seminal L.A. punk bands The Bags and The Gun Club, author of the book Punk Like Me, and um, all-around fantastic guy, super creative. We've known each other for, like, cough, cough, 45 years or so. <laughs> Hi, Hello. Terry. How are you doing? Hello, Pleasant. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. If you're good, I'm good. So we're still here. Yeah. I know. We're still here, huh? Um, the other day, me and you were talking about um, how there's there's been so many people from the early L.A. punk scene that are not with us anymore. And sometimes yeah. I wonder how... 
any of us like even survived because those days were so wild. Um, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's it is a strange thing, and I and I've thought about it, you know, just down through the years when you kind of think about other groups or or maybe things that happened before us and and uh and you think those same thing you know it's like well why why do some people just keep going and going and going and and so many others don't i i you know who knows i i can't put my finger on it but um i just think we're lucky the genes are good i guess and um uh somehow it certainly wasn't a healthy lifestyle for a while (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why I'm saying the genes have to be good because it had nothing to do with uh, going to the gym and eating properly and things like that. <laughs> Even though we may have done that over the years at times, you know, I, I've tried, but um, I don't know. I'm just glad that, uh, that we're here to talk about it. So um, that, you know, it's weird because like those days were so fucking amazing. It's really hard to convey what it was really like to people um, nowadays, what it was yeah. like back then, because we it was a world with absolutely no social media, no email, not even, um, you know, landline phones only, not even call waiting or answering machines at a lot of points of it, um, mostly because like call waiting wasn't wasn't around in the early days of punk and then answering machines were expensive and it was yeah yeah it's it's, yeah it's it's kind of uh it's incredible because the telephone to me back then meant the nearest telephone booth uh or the nearest 7-eleven or something like that you know and uh uh, I, I, I keep thinking about that one. Um, I mean, I'm kind of jumping in here, but uh, that one incident at um, the plunger pit where um, uh, we had uh, the singer for the Wildcats. I can't remember his name. Um, Gerard. Yeah, Gerard. Was- it. Yeah. When uh, he uh, was um, came in and there were a group of us there, uh, but he was cl- clearly had... Uh, had some serious life-threatening issues and, and I think was passing away in front of us. And uh, KK, of course, drummer for the Screamers, ran out the door to the nearest phone booth, uh, called Gerard's dad, and and then uh, uh, immediately he came over. But, you know, that was truly a kind of a life-or-death hanging-by-every-moment situation once we realized, uh-oh, this is, like, serious here and uh but yet in spite of not having you know 18 cell phones right in our pockets um kk thankfully went made the call the guy showed up went to the hospital saved the day so you know the kk rescued me one time too <clears throat> i thought okay so first of all let me, let me just explain to people that are listening the plunger pit was the home of the plungers which was helen killer trudy or and Mary Rat, and the plunger pit was in the exact same building as John Doe and Exine's um, adult books uh, apartment. It was it was at La Jolla and Santa Monica, right across the street yeah. from one of the best clubs in town called the Starwood. And that building was a hotbed of punk rock activity, obviously, um, you know, just immortalized in adult books by X. But um, and, and the Wildcats were a very um, 
they were they were like a great and really popular band on the LA punk scene in the early days, even though a lot of people right now probably don't really know who they are. Gerard is still active on social media. But um, so KK saved me too. KK and Fast Freddy, who was a DJ and um, had the, the backdoor man fanzine. I was at a party at the Germs house, um, their apartment on Holloway, which you, you were probably at. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was raining and um, the Screamers had brought over a bunch of Mickey's Big Mouth beer, which was a new discovery to us. We called it old man beer. <laughs> um, but I was trying to go down the steps and they lived on the second floor and the steps were concrete painted over with some kind of slick paint. And I one of my yeah. feet kind of slipped. I grabbed the railing and I flipped over and fell onto the concrete. and. KK and Fast Freddy immediately ran down and um, picked me up and got me into a car and brought me to the hospital. And um, they were giving me like a concussion test in the hospital. I like um, fractured my jaw and, uh, you know, I was wearing like total insane punk rock clothes. Like I, I had on some kind of a yeah. homemade t-shirt and these jeans that were all bleached out and fucked up. And I had like this um, belt made with a buckle of Japanese toys that I'd gotten from Little Tokyo. It wasn't a real belt. I'd like glued it together. <clears throat> so they were trying to give me a concussion test. And I thought they were checking to see if I was drunk. And I couldn't really talk because my jaw was so fucked up. But it kept going, I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk. But they were just trying to see if my eyes would trace their fingers. I thought it was this anxiety test. Yeah. 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 See, you know, I mean situations that that uh, at any time you know could be or are were really serious and yet we were able to deal with all of that sometimes it amazes me too when i think about uh well what was different i don't know we did everything we wanted to do we we took risk we took chances uh uh and um somehow it worked out for us i think i mean like it would work out for for any group of people, we didn't really need, we did not need the instant connection because we had it with each other. You know, instead of a cell phone, I could go to Disgraceland or I could go to the plunger pit or whatever. And there was everything I needed to know right there. One person had some information. This person knew about a party. That person knew who was going to play next week. There was the internet. There was everything we needed. So I don't really think it's, it was all that unusual uh, or, or somehow, you know, back in the dark ages, it wasn't that at all. We had access to everything that we needed to know uh, to get along. So, you know, sometimes I do want to toss the, the phone, but I'm like, no, I can't do that. I need it. So, but uh, I don't know. We made it all work and uh, we didn't even think about it. We didn't worry about it because we had to be there in person and we you just had to take risks in life which i think is kind of missing now i think it was amazing being there in person um just like now in the pandemic times so like it would be way more amazing to see many more people in person <laughs> but um yeah. so tell me tell me how um you joined the bags because didn't you come from texas you came out from texas right yeah i came out in a uh, late 76 and uh i was living with my cousin in van nuys and I, I i came out with the ramones album i had bought that before i left 
and I, I knew that something, you know, I, I hated that record when I first heard it. And I, I went and bought it. And I just thought it was like, oh, my God, this is the worst shit ever. And I and I listened. I read a um, an article in, in um, The Village Voice. Well, I think probably their first punk article. It was in 1976. And it had Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine. And then just a short thing about stuff that was going on at CBGB's and this new whatever this stuff is. And it mentioned the Ramones as being uh, kind of, uh, you know, part of it, but they were the first ones to play or something. It was really super early on. And uh, so I went and bought it from these, you know, hippie dudes at the local record store. And uh, uh, I couldn't believe that they actually had the record. But um, but then the strange thing was that uh, I played it and 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 I hated it. And, and then I played it again. And I kind of still hated it, but I couldn't stop playing it. And it was like, it didn't take very long, literally two or three days playing it all the time before I realized, oh, fuck, this is the greatest shit ever. This is, it dispenses with everything that was so grotesque and overblown about 70s pop culture. And so I had to overcome a lot of, you know, built in i love my guitar solos i want to see a nine i want to hear a nine minute song and you know it, it I, I had to overcome that but it quickly did that and i was like okay that's it i'm sold i'm done that's it i love it whatever this is i don't know then i moved to la and i went to this i think was the first time i went to the uh house where the screamers lived the wilton yeah. hilton yeah um, and that was really an interesting place anyway, because it kind of had some history. Um, but I remember Brian Tristan, there were so many people there, Craig Lee, and I was just kind of meeting a lot of some of them for the first time. For all you listeners. Yeah. Um, and Alice, um, I, I knew Nikki, Nikki and Beat and I, who's a drummer for the Weirdos at the time. And before that, Venus and the Razorblades and things like that but he and I hung out because we were drummers and we would go to professional drum shop on Vine and go to their cardboard boxes where all the junk is and try to fashion these Frankenstein drum sets you know out of out of these bins and these parts and stuff and uh, so then finally he introduced me to Alice and um and Nikki of course was like well hey you know so um I, I'm playing their songs right now but they need a drummer and and Alice, she's like, have you ever played drums? And I said, actually, yes, I have a long time ago in grade school. I said, but I know how to play, uh, I think. And she said, well, why don't you come to rehearsal? Why don't you join the bags? Why don't you come to rehearsal? Just join the bags. And um, so, of course, I was, you know, extremely nervous. And uh, I, I went there and it just it just went really well. It was like, wow, like riding a bike. You just get back on the bike. There it is. And uh so just like that, um, I was in the band. I, the germ drummer, Don Bowles, he was, they had talked to him, I think, or she might have mentioned, they had just moved out from Phoenix. But, uh, but. I was the first person up, I met in LA. Who was? I was. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. So, I mean, were you there? I mean, obviously you were at that, at that house all the time. At this house? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was probably there, but I met Don um, on the street, actually. 
Oh my God. He was sleeping in his car. I mean, this was probably before that, that party. And he gave me, um, we were talking, I introduced myself to him because he looked like a punk. I mean, this was the thing in those days for, for all the people listening, like you could tell who someone was by the way they dressed. Now there's no idea. Like I just started talking to him because nowadays you'd never go up to a, a strange guy in a car and just start yeah. talking. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no, because you had no reason to. You know, why would you? I mean, there, there, you might have a reason, but back then uh, everything was so, everybody looked the same. I mean, just finding a pair of jeans that were straight-legged and not flared. Oh, yeah. Not- where would you find that, you know? So, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I was just instantly there. And then Don, yeah, Don, he joined the germs, obviously, which was, I thought, a great fit. I thought he really did a great job with him. Um, but uh, but that's how, uh, after one rehearsal, we were just like, okay, yeah, this works. With Nikki there to show me stuff. So, um, that- that's so cool. I, mean, I know stuff happened so instantaneously in those days. Um, let's take a little break right now to listen to some good old punk rock. And we will be right back. Okay, so let's um, let let's let's pick things up here, Terry. Like, um, huh? what was your favorite um, gig with the bags, or or what was your favorite thing about the mask? Because we were always at the mask so much. This was like LA's yeah. first underground punk club that wasn't the Whiskey or the Starwood. It was in the basement under the Pussycat Theater in Hollywood uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, run by Brendan Mullen, who um, you know later went on to book a bunch of clubs and become an author, RIP Brandon. Um, But the mask was magical. It was a shithole, but to anybody that was there, it was like, it was like Oz. It was, it was, I loved it so much. What, how did you like it? I'm sure you liked it too. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, the odd thing, I don't know how I met Michelle Meyer, who was booking bands at the Whiskey early on, you know, within a few months after this got rolling. And one time she she's like, so where do you live? And I'm like, well, I, I'm not sure <laughs> in my Volkswagen. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, why don't you get an apartment with me? And we don't need anything in it. And because um, uh, I can and we'll do it right here below the Whiskey over there in West Hollywood. And uh you know, it was very expensive over there. Obviously, it, it always has been. And I'm like, God, I don't know if I can. Uh, she's like, don't worry about it. I'll get the apartment. Come in. We'll we'll, we'll work it out. I mean, of all people, Michelle Meyer. I was so, just going to say, I can't yeah. believe you lived with Michelle Meyer. I never knew that. But Michelle Meyer was like super instrumental in my career. 
For you guys who don't know who Michelle Meyer is, because she's one of the unsung heroes of LA rock and roll and punk rock like, since the like late 60s, um, she was one of Pamela DeBar's best friends. She booked the whiskey. She hired me to be ticket taker at the whiskey when I was 16. She yeah. let me put in shows there wow. with my lobotomy. She knew everybody in town, everybody. And then also everybody that was coming from out of town. So, I mean, if we made a biopic about her, nobody would believe her life. She was she was absolutely an incredible person. But I can't fucking believe I never knew you lived with her. <laughs> One month. One month in that apartment, and we would go to Duke's coffee shop at the Tropicana Hotel, and we'd have breakfast in the morning. <clears throat> and of course, people would come in there, you know, like Hal Linden of uh, um, Barney Miller, you know, these TV people, all, all these. And Michelle knew them. Michelle knew them. I mean, she was just, she was big. She was loud. She was just, she was incredible. She was like such a force, you know, and, and she, she really understood where we were coming from. You know, she wasn't afraid of us. She didn't think that we were, uh, she might've thought we looked kind of like, you know, freaks of some sort, but she didn't care. She cared about the business. She cared about bands. She cared about making all this stuff happen. And uh, so it was, I mean, it was platonic, but it was like, it was such an odd thing. You know, when I think about it now, especially we had this empty apartment, but it was close to everything. And, uh, so, uh, we were, um, you know, just hanging out there. And, uh, that's of course one way. I mean, obviously I could get on the guest list, uh, any night I wanted. Sorry about that. Um, that was my phone. It's the uh, Russian national anthem. And I, I, I put that on there as a ringtone because Russia is uh, going to do a, a, a translation of my book, but we'll get to that. Um, so the mask. So what happened was, so Michelle said, okay, so I heard about this place, Hollywood Boulevard. It's in a basement. I'm going to go check the fuck out. What is, I don't know what it is. I'm going to go like that. So she said, but first we have to go pick up Ken Fowley and he's at his, he lives in East Hollywood. So we got to go pick up, you know, the, king pig dog of hollywood or whatever she called it michelle michelle was like that she was like a combination of uh, of rodney bingenheimer and kim fowley and they all spoke the same language they all had their own slang right i know godhead everything was godhead like the germs are godhead godhead yes godhead right right and and uh, you know and i kind of feel like i just fell off a turnip truck and i'm just sort of going along like, well, wherever it takes me, I don't know. But I had a car. Michelle did not. So we go over and I had a Volkswagen, 1967 Volkswagen Fastback. It's not a big car. Kim Fowley is a tall, thin guy. And when he got in the car, the first thing he started doing was bitching and complaining about how tiny the car was and how this was so beneath him to be in a car like this. <laughs> so I'm driving him. Because he was tall. <laughs> oh, he was just like... Yeah, what is this you horror show? Club and the only person you'd see was Kim Fowley because the rest of the people were like three feet under his head. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm just trying to get us to the club, that's all. I'm just Michelle's friend. So, <laughs> so we drive to this alley, uh, the Pussycat Theater there on Hollywood Boulevard, and then above it was the uh, the building with like the first Screen Actors Guild, uh, first Writers Guild offices, Hollywood Western Building, I think it was called. 
and it had these amazing uh, lithographs or whatever they were uh, in the in the uh, lobby, this Art Deco lobby. Of course, until those lithographs were cut out by some people that we know and taken to the uh, plunger pin. But um, so we go to the alley. There's a door, you know, unmarked, nothing. Go downstairs, meet Brendan, and he then explains. Well, it's kind of a rehearsal hall. Uh, and, uh, but we might be doing live shows someday. I don't, you know, Brendan was just, he was just this very soft-spoken Scottish guy, not really punk, not, just kind of just this guy who, uh, was accommodating and, uh, uh really driven, uh, to, to create a space for musicians to be able to practice and play and, and, uh, you know, and just have something. Unfortunately for Brendan, of course, was, he had one entrance and exit, of course, the same thing, in uh, into the basement. But according to LA Fire Code, you had to have two. And the only other place that it could have been done was at the far end of the room, which was directly underneath Hollywood Boulevard. And nobody was going to be able to create an exit from a basement <laughs> onto Hollywood Boulevard. So his place was doomed from the start. And... Uh, you know, but we met him. It was really interesting. And, and I, I just like, here's our home. This is it. This is our home away from home, Brendan. Sorry. You're, you're, you're our father. You're our punk father here. Uh, keep this thing open because, you know, this is it. You're going to be seeing a lot of us. Um, so that, that all took place. And then my first show with the bags was the whiskey of all places, which for me was terrifying because it's the whiskey and there was so much history. So I drank this big milkshake before the show thinking, oh, that'll calm me down. The first thing I did almost was throw the thing up outside the whiskey. So there's this, there was this huge pink splat on the sidewalk and I'm like, ah, okay, I feel better. Now I can go play. And um, uh, that show for me was, uh, was, will always be memorable. And um, the one that we did at an airline school at LAX. What the fuck? It was, there was an atrium in the middle of this building, pretty, pretty big. And, you know, on all four sides were like these dorms for these students from the Middle East and India and just all over. And we set up in the middle of this atrium and played in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> we're all so busy laughing. How the fuck did that gig come to be? That's something Craig did. Craig, 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 Craig would get these weird things. You know, his mother, of course, was in Plan Nine from Outer Space, and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. and uh, so we don't know how he did it, but he was always coming up with something. And he was like, "Oh, it's a hundred bucks. Who cares? It's a hundred bucks." You know, which at the time was good. That was a lot um, of money. Yeah, we played it in front of no one, and a, a couple of students, uh, uh, like up on the third floor or something, and they would stare down at us and kind of go, "What the fuck just happened? What, why is this happening right now? We don't get it." Um, but um, anyway, that show, you know, everything that we did with the bags uh, is kind of memorable because there weren't a whole lot of shows. We opened for Iggy Pop in Seattle. That was really fun. Um, and uh, that was our only tour that we ever went on, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and then back to L.A. <coughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I loved being in the bags. And, and uh, you know, we were fairly – we really thought 
<clears throat> we were going to get signed to some sort of record contract. Boy, that was stupid. But at the time, I don't know. You just think those things, you know, you think it's possible. Well, I think L.A. was like behind New York and London and so, like L.A. still had like the Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles kind of. Yes. Yeah. And all the business, everybody in the business, th that's where their heads were at, too. You know, it's not like New York where they were kind of sneaking into clubs and looking at stuff and checking it out. Obviously, it happened in London. But yeah. in L.A., even with the industry right behind us or in our backyard, you know, they were just they were completely disconnected from what we were doing. I mean, the fucking knack, you know, playing at the Starwood, um, selling it out in like a year into the whole punk thing with it was, was just exploding. It's like they were clueless. It's like, no, 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 this is what we want. This is this is radio shit. You know, this is this is this is the stuff that'll sell uh, what you guys are doing. I don't know. That'll just blow away and and you'll disappear. It's like they just they, they were just clueless. Yeah, they were clueless. They were a bunch of old men and not just because we were young. I mean, they were idiots. Oh, um, they were idiots. Yeah, complete idiots. Let's 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 switch gears and talk about um, the Canterbury where I never lived at but passed out at frequently. Um, <laughs> so the Canterbury was like the iconic punk rock building it was this it had once been like this gorgeous like 20s or 30s sort of silent movieville grandeur and then it was kind of like um there wasn't crack in those days but nowadays we'd call it a crack house <laughs> yeah, God. at least at best yeah say you all lived there because i'm sure a lot of people know but i mean <clears throat> well. it was was ground zero of the punk scene and it was like kitty corner across the street from the mask on cherokee yeah, the thing that uh, the plunger pit was sort of the like the first uh, place, you know, and I stayed there a lot. Uh, I was there all the time. Um, but that didn't last very long before landlords, neighbors, police, etc. Um, uh, forced uh, Helen and Trudy out. And so everybody was just kind of like, well, where do we go? And, you know, there were different places. Obviously, you know about that. And uh, uh so uh, Rod, this guy named uh, Rod and shit, I can't remember. Rod Donahue. He, Rod he, Donahue, he was, thank you. He was a man about town in the L.A. punk scene. Yeah, he was just such a nice guy. And and uh, he moved there first. He found it somehow. And uh, he invited um, uh, some people uh, to come over and check the place out. And um, so I remember going over there with Debbie Dub. And uh, remember parking in front of the place, you know, the gate didn't work, broken glass everywhere. The little fountain, there was a fountain uh, midway from the street to the uh, to the front door on that path that you walked, you know, that, of course, it just just weeds and neglect. Um, and it was fairly spooky. I mean, at least half. It's like the building was a U shape as you walked uh, down the pathway to the front door. But it, it was almost like a claw. And there were all these dark windows, you know, and it was like, oh, fuck, what is this place? It looked abandoned. <clears throat> a couple of dim lights on here and there, you know. So we're like, OK, Rod, here we go. Um, I but, saw Rod uh, at a party at the Canterbury once. I think this was um, I think this was in Belinda's apartment. I can't remember because everyone's apartment had Murphy beds, those beds that yeah. fold out of the wall. Out of the wall. 
Yeah. We were all pogo dancing to the clash and all of a sudden the Murphy bed just slammed out of its little doorway and hit right on the head and he like passed out. Oh my God. Oh, I'm sure that place, that place must've been so haunted. There was all kinds was- of, shit. I mean, when Debbie, the, 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 for that night, that first night, we, there were LAPD um, up at the front door and uh, we were like, oh shit, uh, what now? They asked us our names, why we were visiting the apartment, all this stuff. And we were just like, hey, we just came to see a friend. We're just saying, hi, we don't know anything about anything else. So they let us in and there was a dead body uh, on the floor in the middle of that big foyer and with blood just having oozed out of his head. Well, he had just been shot by the manager. And um, <laughs> so the manager was, of course, arrested the body's still there, and the and the LAPD cop, one of them, you know, make sure you step around the body as you go to the stairway. And we're like, oh, that's <laughs> so, so Debbie and I are like, uh, uh, we here. thought about moving here. I'm not so sure, um, but the elevator didn't work. So you know, we're walking up the stairs, and you know, there's holes and there's burn marks on the carpet and. And uh, we're like, fuck, I hope it better be cheap because <laughs> so that was that was our introduction was somebody who had just been shot in the head and uh, uh, killed. And we're like, well, it's Hollywood. You know, shit happens. Uh, <laughs> but, what, what can we say? <laughs> but immediately we want we did want to live there um, after getting. There. But then as soon as we go into Rod's apartment, you know, you sat down on the floor because there was hardly anything else there. And immediately you were attacked by cockroaches. The cockroaches were never ending. They were just everywhere, constant, all over the place. And, uh, uh, you know, just an- another, re- and I suspect that, that many generations down the road are still in that building, which, you know, is still there. Um, when you, when but, you were going out with Jane Weedland, did you guys live together at the Canterbury? I can't remember, because I remember her apartment, but I don't remember if you guys were. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was um, a bit of a dickhead about that. Uh, Debbie Dub and Jane were going to rent an apartment there, and um, I don't, I don't remember exactly what my dickheadedness uh, was, but somehow I sort of put myself in Debbie's place, and I've always felt really bad about that. And I've wrote to Debbie since and apologized, like I didn't mean to do that, but I had to live with Jane there. And of course, Jane accepted. She's like, okay, fine, we'll do that. But um, so that's how I ended up in that place on the second floor uh, with Jane, uh, Nikki Beat, and Alice uh, had a place there. Yes, Belinda, of course. Um, let's see. Um, oh my God. They, there were some other people that. Um, Trixie lived there. Trixie lived there, right? Trixie for a little bit, I believe she did. What about. Uh, Shannon from Castration Shannon, Shannon and Alice. Yeah, I'm sorry. Shannon and Alice were there first before Nikki uh, came around. They they had they had an apartment by the front door, and Alice would leave the window open all the time and often sit in the window or we'd we'd poke our heads in and see what was going on. At- I remember going to the Canterbury and everyone had their windows open, or you could be walking down Hollywood Boulevard and you could hear the clash or the damned coming out of. All the windows, and sometimes the songs were in sync, but other times you'd hear like pieces of the clash and then right. pieces of the band or you know yeah. whatever. Like UK forty five would come out, and it was it was like listening to like a 
a hip hop master mix of all different punks. <laughs> yeah, it was right there in that building. Uh, Michael Michael Schwartz and um, oh my God, I must be really getting old. Um, oh wait, I am getting old. Um, Michael, Michael Schwartz, Human Hands. I'm in. No, was it Human Hands? No. No, uh, Michael. And um, I can't remember her name. She was um, uh, uh, blonde. Um, uh, it's not Shannon. Oh, it could have been for only a week. We all, our hair all changed so much. Yeah, exa well, exactly. I know. I know. Everybody <laughs> was bleaching it. And it's like I never went there, but I was tempted. Anyway, there were there, people started moving in almost immediately. Uh, and I love that idea because it kept us together. You know, LA is so spread out and it's so easy to kind of lose contact and stuff I, I thought you know for this thing to keep going you know we, we need we need places we need one here and one there you know that are kind of uh, um, uh, information central for various groups of people and and so I was I was happy about uh, the Canterbury that people were coming in there were still some bikers there there were still some really really strange people there was a woman who used to dress in this sort of green um, these these layers of a green gauze I, I don't know what it was she had a huge turban and uh she would walk extremely slowly in and out of the building she must have been 90 years old or something I mean it was god only knows what stories she could have told um it was there were, <laughs> yeah it was I mean she, she was so part of the family you know but but there were a number of people still like that Trudy and KK had a place there uh and uh you know i mean it went it went pretty strong for uh well for some months i don't know maybe a year i guess uh, yeah i think it was people... a year. that's kind of what i remember yeah and and it was you know it was going pretty much 24 hours a day in somebody's place and uh and then we got to rehearse in the basement for a little while um, the guy, uh, the apartment manager said, yeah, it's maybe a way to make a few bucks. So he would let people rehearse down there, but it was, it was airless and, uh, extremely hot and, you know, not, not much fun. Um, but you know, the cops were there a lot. I, I, uh, there was, uh, I don't re really remember much trouble from the people that we knew, but, uh, sometimes there were, well, there was, but it wasn't like they murdered someone in the lobby. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. Right. Not trouble like that. It was it was other stuff, but, <laughs> you know, we weren't... A uh, little noise and a little bit of lesbian activity in the elevator when at least they're not killing anybody. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah, be careful when you open a door there because you might find a whole bunch of girls, you know, all on the bed. I don't know. That happened to me a couple That of was times. totally true all the time. I, yes. I can attest to that. I'm just like, oh my God, okay, I shouldn't have opened the door. Or maybe I should have, and I should have just kind of like grabbed a chair and been entertained, but but I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> yes, things like, you know, things like that happen. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that was, uh, that was, that was pretty good. And we managed to push that through well into 1978, you know, before it started, everybody kind of started to go separate ways and stuff. Well, let's let's move um now that we're in um 1978 let's play a gun club song and then let's um we will talk about 
your experience with Jeffrey Pierce and the Gun Club and Kid Congo and all of that. So yeah. here's, here's a little music from the Gun Club. It's cloudy in the west, it looks like rain. My eyes are black holes and I'm burning away. Slaughtered your loving man, killed him in his sleep. And the blood crowd of your murder, simply stains the sheets. Your ghost on the highway, your gestures meaningless. Your loss to the living man, trace souls to the end. You thought winning as a woman meant failing as a friend. Okay, hi, hi again, Terry. Let's, let's pick Hello. this up. With, with some gun club shit. Yeah. Yes. Gun club. Those guys. Um, so, you know, like by 1980, as you know, um, there was all the post-punk, the new romantics, and there was just, just you know, shit changes. Uh, give it three or four years, it's going to evolve, it's going to change. And um, the bags broke up because we just did with Patricia... Alice, Craig, me, Rob, they're, they're just the, the egos, the personalities. I mean, it's not going to last forever. And um, sadly, I wish we'd made an album. That's my only regret there. It just didn't happen. Um, but, uh, but that fell apart. And so Rob and I, being bass player, drummer, we're like, you know what? We need to find another band. We need to find one quick. And let's find a band that's kind of popular. Well, of course, the popular bands, they're, are, they're all good. They don't need uh, bassists and drummers and, um, uh, or maybe one, but we wanted to be a unit. And I had already known Jeff. I had met Jeff a long time before. I think the first time I met him uh, was at one of the um, parties that they would have on Saturday afternoons at Bomp Records in North Holland. Bomp, of course. That was another, Bomp Records was in the Valley, run by Greg Shaw, and they would always have parties there. Sometimes there'd be an in-store by somebody, like I remember the Damned, everybody on earth went to the Damned at Bomp yeah. Records, because the Damned yeah. was the first um, British punk band to come over, and like even Angeline was there, I remember. She showed up she showed up and she had a band called Baby Blue at that time. Yeah. And she showed up in a Baby Blue corset and she walked through the door in the sunlight. And I remember even then looking at her going, wow, that lady's old, which might have meant at that time, maybe in her late 20s or something. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. God, it's like, it's so true. But she had, she, you know, she had some balls on her, I tell you. Um, whatever the fuck it was. I don't know how to define whatever she was, but um, that's what was kind of fun about Hollywood. You had this weird mix of, you know, us and all, all these strange sort of sideline interpretations of how to be famous or where to be famous or, you know, and, and, and uh, it was just, it was a great mix, which of course is long gone. Um, but, um, but I met Jeff, uh, I think it was at the Blondie party they had there oh, at Bomb. He was obsessed. He was the head of the of Blondie's fan club. Jeff yeah. Pierce was. He was obsessed yeah. with Debbie. He wrote. He wrote. He wrote a lot of early songs that weren't the Gun Club. Um, 
about Debbie. And that right. and then his obsession switched to Ivy from the Clarence. <laughs> right. <laughs> Debbie and Ivy, right. Uh, and uh, various others, but yeah, those two for uh, were were huge in his head. Um, but you know, and and I'd known about Jeff because he would write for uh, Slash Magazine, which was uh, LA's kind of big uh, newsprint, um, large format uh, fanzine, which actually had advertisements in it, and and uh, I, some of us thought there was a lot of money behind it or, or whatever it was, you know, but but. It was uh, Jeff would write under various pseudonyms. The ranking, ranking Jeffrey Lee. Remember yeah. that? Yeah, but he, he was really ranking for a while too. Him, him, and Kickboy were, were Claude Betsy were way into reggae. Yeah, yeah, and and they and, and you know what what amazing personalities both of those guys, uh, uh, and, and and you know both of them had a great sense of humor. I mean, Jeff, uh, I could see that or I could read it. And, and um, so, you know, we just started talking and, oh my God, you know, when Jeff started talking, get him on, uh, just just say anything about um, a, an old record or, or some artist or something obscure. And, and Jeff, he was, he was, he was like, just like, I mean, at the time I thought of him as a walking encyclopedia, I guess. It, I, don't I was just going to say that him and Fast Freddy were like walking encyclopedias of music of all genres. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fast Freddy, just, it just, they just knew everything. And I, so I was kind of in awe of them, you know, I'm like, wow, how can you know so much shit about so many things, you know, but that's because they loved it. And, and it was really important to them. And, and, uh, you know, Jeff would tell me about the, uh, uh, he would scour every, uh, uh, not just record store, but, um, I almost wanted to call it a vintage store, but at the time, of course, uh, you know, Goodwills and Salvation Armies and and yeah, thrift stores of all kinds. Record stores and Watts and get like white label, yeah. you know, yeah, like exactly. He would do that, and, and so he would find records. He would find things because you could find them then. You could find that stuff sitting around. Nobody gave a shit, um, and so he he just built up his knowledge and his collection. And uh, he just went on and on and on. And, and I thought, well, he sure likes to talk. But what a, you know, fascinating guy. He lived up in the valley and <clears throat> really wasn't a part of the Hollywood scene or anything. But he's, he started um, my band, um, the Cyclones. He, he forced uh -huh. me to be in that band. And then that was how I got into bands because he kept telling me I should be a singer. And I resisted for so long. He did the uh -huh. same thing with Texacala Jones with Texan yeah. the but yeah, wait, yeah. I need to sing you. Um, <laughs> I need to sing everybody the best fucking white label reggae record that Jeff brought over to my house. So these white label reggae records were um, they were uh, they were blank labels, but it was famous people you could recognize, like Bob Marley or Bunny Whaler or like anyone singing on them. And it was them getting more wasted than they ever did on their normal recordings, but they were like X-rated, dirty, adult reggae records. So this is, I don't remember exactly what the title of this song was, but it's probably in the part I'm gonna sing you. This was the chorus. Um, North, South, West, and East. I play the beauty and my boyfriend played the beast. Mia homosexual, Mia homosexual, North, East, west, and south. I take it in the ass and I take it in the mouth. We are almost sexual. 
um, like Jeff brought that record over and just left it at the Scrays end and I had it on the turntable 24 seven. And then one of the, um, one of the guys from TSOL was over there and I saw him at a club a few days later and he was like, fuck you, Pleasant. I was singing that song at the bar at the music machine out loud. <laughs> uh, right. Well, you can't help it, you know? Yeah, you had, know, yeah, so. all the best records. Well, Jeff told me that, you know, he, he, he did take a trip down there to uh, Kingston and I, I sometimes wondered if it was if it was true or not. It was so much detail in it though. I, I figured he probably did it. Because that was no, the thing I about that I'm pretty sure he did it, but I'm also yeah. pretty sure he didn't take it in the ass or take it in the mouth oh, when no. he went down. <laughs> no, Jeff wouldn't go there. But uh, but but the thing about Jeff and, and, and going to Kingston like that, just because he loved it, he the guy Speaking of like big sets of balls, I mean, I, I, Jeff, they were just huge because he was so driven and just his love of music and, and culture of, of all kinds, you know, was just so much a part of him that he didn't know how to do anything but find ways to express it or, or find ways to explore it. And, and, uh, you know, so he was just kind of fearless, really, literally, uh, and um, anyway, so it's just um, to kind of spring forward a little bit. So Rob and I, we went to various clubs looking for bands and listening to bands and trying to you know, find somebody. And it's like, fuck, I don't know. What are we going to do? And uh, I got a flyer or saw one that uh, Gun Club was playing at the Hong Kong Cafe. And I'm like, oh, I, that's Jeff's brand new band. He just I think they've only played one show and they were called Creeping Ritual. And now they're called Gun Club. And so we go there and we really didn't care. I mean, we just thought, well, we'll just go have a drink and, you know, whatever. We'll talk to Jeff. But as soon as they started to play, um, I, I was immediately taken by it. It was really rough. Uh, Brad Dunning, who is a, uh, uh, was a good friend at the time, and I've, I've talked to him lately. He's doing great. Um, yeah, I talk to Brad all the time. Another unsung hero of the punk scene. Yeah. Him and Kid Congo had a magazine, a fanzine called Contempo Trends. And uh -huh. it was all, like, it was weird. Like, there'd be like weird 50s architecture and stuff right. about mid-century sofas in it. And then there'd be, right. be like, you know, reviews of like live shows of X or something. Right. Oh, yeah. Brad, Brad just knew all that stuff. You know, he was so, he was just so into that. And, and it's, it's such a, such a genius about it, you know, so early on. And uh, I, 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 as far as I know, it turned out great for him and I'm really happy, but he was the first gun club drummer and um, Don Waller, who was a writer, uh, and, also, uh, back to the man, Fast Freddy's magazine. It was yeah, Fast Freddy's. Yeah. He knew what he was talking about. He played bass. Well, I don't know why, uh, you know, but I mean, they they played the show, and I was uh, <clears throat> I thought this is very rough, but this is really interesting. This is really cool. I don't. It's not punk. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it. So after the show, I went up to Jeff and I was kind of like, um, "Hey, man, um, if." If you ever need a drummer and a bass player, let me know because Rob and I, we'd love to kind of, you know, see what could happen. And he said, well, funny you should ask because Brad and Don just quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's synchronicity right there. Yeah. And so I said, oh, they did, huh? 
I said, well, then uh, me, I'm your new drummer and Rob is your new bass player. And I said, uh, uh, how about that? And he's like, sounds good. I've got a rehearsal next week because, you know, we ended up hating to go to rehearse. Not for any reason. We were just lazy and didn't want to rehearse. Um, but that's how we joined Gun Club. It was just that simple. Um, Brad and Don, that was their last show. And I happened to ask him the same night. So, you know, that was it. So we would just go to this little uh, horrible little room on Selma uh, Avenue, which is just south of Hollywood Boulevard, uh, and rehearse and just kind of create all the shit that became Fire of Love. Um, Jeff would come in with sort of a skeleton, you know, a couple of chord changes, and then we would just we would just create it out of that, you know, and. What I liked about it, first of all, was Rob was so brilliant on bass. He was so good. He was just so naturally talented and knew that that kind of uh, music so well. Anyway, um, that uh, we were we were totally free to just just create whatever. Jeff was very open to. I don't know what this is. Let's let's create it. Let's figure it out. And uh, so, uh, you know. It, it was it was really fun. We only played a show or two, and then Kid immediately, um, almost immediately, joined the Cramps, and yeah. uh, and we were uh, we were like at once really jealous. <laughs> like, yeah, because oh, like you can't you can't blame someone for leaving your band to join the Cramps. You know? Oh God, no! Because oh, no. they were everyone's favorite band. Yeah, we told him like Kid, we hate you or Brian at the time. It's yeah, like, we Brian. hate you, but, but, and we're really jealous, but you know, we love you too. And uh, we just want you to go and have like the greatest time of your life. And, uh, but, and he understood. And I mean, it was just all really fun for all of us to, uh, to think that uh, he was going to be in the cramps. We, we really liked that. We just thought that's perfect. You know, he'll be great. And uh, <clears throat> so then we had to find somebody in, in, um, the strange thing about Ward Dotson was that he was living in Orange County and he had just two days before had tried out for the cramps. Uh, when they also, he, was, he, he moved into my house, Disgrace Island. Oh, he did. I didn't even know that. Yeah, he took over Belinda's room when she went on tour with the Go Go's. Oh. oh, okay. Well, how about that? <laughs> it was so strange because he was so brokenhearted, you know, that that the, the cramps didn't want him. And of course I took one look at him and like Ward, you know, you look like a, a sort of a preppy dude from Orange County. Okay. Of yeah. course they're not going to, you're not going to be in that band. Forget it. It's not going to happen. doesn't matter how good you are. Um, you, you've got to look the part. Okay. It's the cramps. I mean, sorry, you just have to. And, uh, uh, but he was perfect for us because he really understood roots and blues music. And he was very good at that uh just instantly you know so he fit right in and he and jeff could uh communicate pretty well and uh so it it, it just really gelled and came together and it it didn't it wasn't long after that you know uh before we went into the studio with fire of love so i'm glad we went in kind of early but you know we were feeling here's the thing we were feeling pretty neglected and lonely and, and feeling sorry for ourselves and full of self-pity <laughs> because, uh, but you know, it's like, well, well, we don't, we hardly even know what we are. How's anyone, anyone else going to know that? And we were looking for a bone of some sort 
you know, and you, Pleasant, did that for us. When you gave us that short little review in LA Weekly, that was our first taste of like, oh my God, maybe we could be something. Maybe really? Wow. Yes. You, you gave that to us and made us feel like so early on when we needed it so badly that was we were like reading it going oh my god look somebody actually wrote about us it's pleasant it's great she knows what she's talking about right of course she does it must be real it must be true (laughs) so you you really helped uh uh add a, a a kind of really strong unifying glue to us when we're all sort of had our eye on like other bands and like i don't know if this is gonna work let's just make an album and forget about it um, so uh, I have to thank you for that all these years later, because that was really, that was really good for us. And, uh, uh, you know, we were just like, okay, well, we can't give up. We just got to keep trying. And, and, uh, our first show at club 88, we were banned, uh, immediately from club 88. I, I, I got banned from there, but it was for having sex in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been more fun than that was that was worth it. Um that was with somebody else who later joined the gun club too. No names here. <laughs> Everybody was in the gun club. I know, um, I know for me, but I guess I was kind of in them if I wrote about you. Hey, um we let's we have to move along a little bit because I got okay. kind of a calm constraint. So let's so as we're talking about writing um and not not getting banned from places, even though like me and you could both get banned from anywhere still, if we wanted to. If we Um, wanted to, we certainly could. Yes, maybe we should try to do that on a senior citizen level pretty soon. (laughs) Fuck you Um, guys all these years later. Fuck you all, let me take out my teeth and tell you for real. (laughs) Right, Um, I can't get banned, yes I can. <laughs> so your book, Punk Like Me, is is it's been out for a couple of years, but you've got some new stuff going on with it. First of all, let me before you talk, I gotta tell everyone you should read this book. Terry is an incredible writer, like on the level of his drumming, and he's got he has like one of the best memories in punk rock, I gotta say, except for mine, and I'm not self-aggrandizing because a lot of people that we talk to don't remember anything or they remember us. Yeah, so oh God. So as yeah. but we gotta we gotta write it all down before we get Alzheimer's. <laughs> but what's I going know, on? I know. What's right. going on with your book right now? Tell us. Well, so yeah, it is uh it was a couple of years and um uh since it first came out. And what I'm doing now is I'm talking to a couple of uh, British publishers for a print version uh, that'll go, that's got, uh, that'll have worldwide distribution. It was always just kind of something I, uh, that was done, uh, uh, you know, very locally in a sense. Um, But that, uh, that should uh, change all that. COVID sort of put a, delay on everything um but it's still active ongoing and um uh we're about ready to uh pull the trigger on that so to speak uh i'm also doing an audio version of it and uh that is going to be like an itunes book uh or or rather an ibook at first and then it'll be available across every platform 
Um, I have, there's a, a Russian translated version that's going to come out next year. And uh, I just think that's really cool, you know, and I, uh, all I want is a copy of that just to sort of like, ah, look, it's in You're Russian. You're writing in Cyrillic script. Yeah. It's, it's you're on a rocket to Russia, Terry. <laughs> I know. I'm just thinking of the book tour in Russia. Okay, that's going to be interesting. Uh, but um, but you know, there's a, a couple of people I've talked to in the, in the Ukraine, and and they're just such great uh, fans of rock and roll in general, and and uh, you know, they they wanted to make it happen, and I I was like, well. Uh, look, I don't know, translating it, I want you guys to just take it and make it, make it readable or for Russian. I said, you're going to have a tough time with this. There's a lot of references to all kinds of things that I have in my book. And uh, I said, just do whatever you want. I don't care. Just, just make it readable for Russians <laughs> or whatever. But I, I just, I just like that. You know, I just like the fact that it's, uh, it's going to be in Russian. French? No. Russian? Yes. Um, although I would love a French version too, but otherwise that stuff will kick in, uh, bigger next year and, uh, kind of, you know, get rolling and to the ground, uh, in a way none of us have been able to the past six or seven months. It's just been a little bit tough. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where that's at. I re-edited the entire book. Wow. So yeah, it was. I think it was, I'm glad I did it. Um, I, uh, it's funny. I mean, obviously you would know this cause you've been prolific of uh, writing so many amazing things that, uh, sometimes you read them again and, and you, you know, you really like it. And sometimes you're like, Oh geez, I wish I could have uh, changed that. Yeah. That's like, you never stop. Um, never um, stop. It's yeah, you don't. It's at some point you have to. But um, anyway, I, I just wanted to uh, kind of uh, I didn't change anything essentially, but um, uh, but just kind of go over it with with a a fine paintbrush and uh, uh, tweak it here and there. Yeah, but, that's um, good. You know, but that's twenty twenty one. All that stuff will get more active and and come out again and it'll be more easily available. Um, uh, I think, and, and, uh, kind of looking forward to the audio book, uh, too. I think that, uh, that'll be really fun. Story time with Terry. Story time with Terry. Yeah. I always tell people just keep the book in the bathroom. That's probably the best place for it. And, uh, just pick it up and read it wherever it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> You know, okay, so before we go, tell me quickly about um, tell me quickly about the clothing stuff you're doing. Like, let everyone know about that. Is that is that in process now, or is it just getting set up? Ah, uh, yes, Terry wear. Um, people used to make fun of me because I would go clothes shopping and and um, you know I would kind of always sort of buy the same vintagey looking stuff, and whether it was new or actual. Uh, and so they were, you know, they were just like, oh, where's the Terry wear we need? And so I, I'd been kicking this idea around for a long time because I love clothes. I love fashion. And I'd never done anything about it. And just finally thought, you know, I need to do something about it because I really, really love that stuff. I really love doing it. And uh, coming up with a name, I just thought of all these different names. And I thought, well, it's so obvious. It's Terry wear. Fuck. Why, why am I why am I beating this horse here? I, it's it's 
that's what it is. So, so yes, it's, it's live. Uh, the website is terrywearclothing.com and I'm starting well, we'll out with some, that, um, we'll in the, in the um, episode description. So you guys can check that out and check out all of Terry's social media and stuff too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's face masks right now. These are based on uh, Judith Bell's illustrations. She's the one who drew all the pictures on the back of the cover of Fire of Love, the first Gun Club album. And they're, they're kind of iconic and uh, they, they've been copied, you know, for a long time for T-shirts and various things. These are official. I'm working with her. And uh, we're also going to do... One of those as soon as they come out or some of them. Yeah, the, uh, uh, I mean, we've got... The first set of face masks now with uh, uh, seven Gun Club songs. And then uh, I'm about to order a second batch with the other songs and then some other things, a couple of cramps, uh, face masks. And uh, they look really good. They're really. Sell the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're you know, um, when I got the masks, they're, they're, they're actually quite nice. They're really comfortable. They're all cotton. They got filter pockets there. So all the safety stuff that we can that we could think of is there and and uh but then we're also going to have uh some uh some shirts uh before christmas and then again next year i'm really gonna amp that up because we have some different collections we want to do a whole western wear collection of some really cool vintage designs and um uh we have a collection called laguna ranch and then there's uh one for women called laguna bitch um <laughs> We've got, uh, it's just a, a whole lot of things. I've got a couple of young people working with me who are very, very good at this stuff. They really know how to create these things. And they've got so much energy, um, like so many other young people I've met that are fans of all the things that, that you and I have done. Uh, they, they just love it. They know more about it than I do. And uh, so I love their energy. I love the fact that they, um, uh, you know, their enthusiasm inspires me and and gives me a lot of energy and maybe that's why I'm still around I don't know but I just I just let them go and um, you know their fire really really helps me so um, uh, I'm very excited about that it's going to be fun but the website's up now and you can buy the masks and they're selling pretty well actually right now so I need to send you something. I want to wear one of, your, one of your masks. What's behind the mask, as the cramps would say? And the pants are burning. Yes, yes, the cramps. I, I, I know I've tried to, uh, uh, I'd love to talk to Ivy. Uh, I know, everybody. Yeah, I talked to her recently, but a couple of years ago, but you know, she's still doing really well, but um, I, I don't know, who knows? Things may happen. I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah, don't say anything. Just just keep a lid on it. Um, yeah, because I would love to still play music. And and uh, I was in the process kind of sort of starting a band. And and uh, I I want to pick that up, too. I, it, I love playing drums. It's just still fun. And you had uh, a band called Sex Beat for a little while. And let's let's um, we'll talk about this for two seconds. And then we got to blow this pop yeah. stone. So sure. sex is like, like just you playing like guns, gun club and bag stuff. And then did you write original songs? I, I am not remembering. No, all that was, was like, um, there was a uh, book reading I did and I, and I thought it would be really fun to have three or four bands, 
play for it early on. Um, and uh, again, these young people that I've met here, they're, they're, their enthusiasm, you know, in particular, in my case anyway, for Gun Club, um, uh, we just were talking one night and it was like, well, why don't we just play some Gun Club songs and a couple of Cramps songs? And because uh, I played with the Cramps for a little while too. And, you know, and we're like, yeah. I love them. They're so amazing. Oh, they're, they're unbelievable. It's so knowledgeable. Uh, it, it, it's 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 just amazing and and such good people uh you know <laughs> I mean, it's like how can you guys guys be such good people and i think about myself when i was young and i was not good at all um oh, yeah i mean they those terminal a guys they remind me of how we were when we were their age or yes. younger you no know, really yeah. and i mean i'm all grandma and grandpa here but like we would have been friends with them in the seventies, but luckily oh God, they, yes. we weren't born then. So now we're friends with them now. <laughs> yes, I know. And I, I feel very fortunate that they allow me to be their friend and to hang out with them and to, uh, uh, you know, that they, that they accept their Michelle Myers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Oh my God. <clears throat> it's true. Well, you know, there's life, right? It's kind of a cycle. I was that now I'm this, they are this soon. They will be where I'm at now. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, it, it's all good. And, and we all accept each other. And I think nowadays really it's better in a lot of ways because everybody kind of accepts everybody for, uh, for things, but, but they just said, let's just, yeah, let's play, let's do a few things. And then there was call to keep doing it. Other people would ask us if we, so there's, it was really not uh, all that serious. It was just kind of a way to have fun. And uh, I love their enthusiasm. Uh, a guy named Sharif Dimani was was uh, uh, playing bass. Uh, he was really really good musician. He's in a lot of local LA bands. Um, so it was that was just for fun. And uh, you know we did a lot of a lot of shows. I uh, don't know if that'll ever pick up again, but uh, that's really fun out. to play with him. So, um, well, other I guess than that you know. Is that good for you? Was it good for yeah, you, Terry? A, uh, it's it's uh, it's good for me. It's good. If it's good for you, it's good for me. It's it, it's good. It was good for me. I hope it's good for the audience. How can it not be with with <laughs> Terry Graham, one of the really shining luminaries of LA punk rock? Um, it's so fabulous to have you, Terry. Make sure you guys. Go over to his Terryware website and um, read his book, buy his book, Punk Like Me. Soon you'll be able to listen to it as an audiobook, or if you so desire, read it in Russian. Um, <laughs> it was really a pleasure talking to you, Terry. Oh, pleasant. I, I appreciate this so much. You are so the best, so prolific and so amazing yourself. I mean, it's just... Uh, and and everybody knows that, so I, I really appreciate it. I am blushing. All right, I'm going to sign off with you, and for all you guys listening, that was, in case you didn't realize, that was the amazing Terry Graham, Mr. T.G., yo, designer, writer, <laughs> punk forever. <laughs> Dude. Dude. All right. um, Uncle T. <laughs> Goodbye, Uncle T. <laughs> Goodbye, Pleasant.
The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.